0: I'm Chris Motz, and this is Faith in Politics. On this broadcast, we range from the soul to the state as we try to cultivate those virtues and explore those principles that help us live well as faithful Catholics in this great land. My guest today is Erica Smith, senior attorney at the Institute for Justice, uh, a pro bono law firm working on matters of uh, civil liberties. And we're gonna talk today about Espinoza v. the Montana Department of Revenue, a big case just out of the Supreme Court in recent weeks. Erica is one of the the senior attorneys, uh, co-lead attorneys working on that case. Welcome to the show Erica.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: Well, and I'm really glad that um, just the connection to you being such a prime attorney working on that really, really big case that is going to be important, I think, for, for the listeners in, of this podcast to learn about. But you also do have some connection to South Dakota in the past, I understand. Uh, do you want to just briefly tell us maybe a little bit about what it is you do, Institute for Justice, and then some of your fond memories of, of working hand-in-hand with some South Dakotans?
1: Sure. Uh, South Dakota is one of my favorite states, so I'd be happy to go down memory lane with you. But we, uh, the Institute for Justice is a national nonprofit law firm. We've been around for 30 years. Uh, We fight government abuse, and we also protect parents' right to choose the best education for their children. So we've been defending school choice programs for 30 years, and we just won our third school choice case uh, just last week at the U.S. Supreme Court. Uh, I... uh, I have, I worked in South Dakota with uh, former Senator Phyllis Heinemann, who I adore. She's wonderful. Uh, And she worked very hard to get South Dakota School Choice Program passed. And I provided some legal counsel to her.
0: Well, and and every time I I visit with Phyllis, Phyllis brings you up and she says, you got to call and talk to Erica Smith. Have you talked to Erica? I mean, she just, Phyllis is always talking about you and just raving about the good work that you did. And for, for those of our listeners that, that maybe aren't familiar with the legislative um, uh, victory that, that Phyllis and Erica and, and many others, it was a big team, but um, there was a, a, a bill that, that gave rise to an organization that's now called South Dakota Partners in Education, and it's a tax credit scholarship program. They, they give relatively modest scholarships uh, to students in need, um, to parents that would like to choose uh, a not uh, a, a non-public, a private school for their children, but otherwise couldn't afford it for, um, for a variety of reasons. It's, it's a really great program. And I know many South Dakotans are grateful to you, Erica, and to the Institute for Justice, just for providing really expert um, legal advice uh, when, that, uh, when that legislative, when that bill was going through. So maybe just to, to the topic at hand today, Espinoza v. Uh, Montana, can you just tell us a little bit or maybe let's start out this way. Before we dive into the facts, I know attorneys like to just kind of start with uh, start with a punch. So, like, what's your, you know, right up front? Like, what's the thesis here? Like, what's what's at stake?
1: Well, um, before last week, uh, there were a lot of states that wanted to be able to pass school choice programs, but they couldn't because they had this very ar- archaic provision in their state constitution called the Blaine Amendment, and it prevented funding or support from going to religious schools. And in certain states that was interpreted to mean that you couldn't even give a scholarship to a family to go to a religious school. And we challenge one of these Blaine Amendments as it was applied to Montana School Choice Program uh, as violating the free exercise clause because it treated religious families and religious schools differently from the non-religious and we won the supreme court said that that absolutely violated the free exercise clause and now pretty much any state that wants a school choice program can can legally have one so this has changed the legal landscape for school
0: choice well and and i got to confess too, just a bit of ignorance on my part when i started my work uh, with the catholic conference three years ago i had a i think i had a finely tuned sense of of the intersection of of some of the Catholic understanding of certain um, freedoms, moral truths, et cetera, the intersection with public policy, but because um, sort of our Catholic sense of of some things in the arena of school choice, you might say, or education policy, they've been all really new to me. And I, I got to confess, I didn't even know what the Blaine Amendment was when I when I started my work three years ago. So just, just based on that, I can't help but wonder if maybe some of the listeners too don't really know what that is. Do you want to just provide just a an overview of the history of what a Blaine Amendment, kind of where did it come from and, and how it functions?
1: Of course. So on their face, Blaine Amendments just look like provisions that are about separation of church and state, preventing the state from funding religion. But their history is pretty ugly. These amendments were predominantly passed in the late 1800s to discriminate against Catholics. At the time, our country was predominantly Protestant, and even the public schools were Protestant. Kids read from the King James Bible, they recited Protestant prayers, Protestant hymns, and Catholic students who refused to comply were were beaten, expelled, And so it was no surprise that when Catholic immigrants came to this country, um, started coming in waves that they wanted something different. They wanted their own Catholic schools and they wanted public funding for those Catholic schools, which was completely understandable. But the Protestant majority didn't like that and they passed these Blaine amendments to prevent funding for quote unquote sectarian schools, which was code for Catholic schools. And for, uh, for a very long time, Historians and even Supreme Court justices have recognized that these Blaine Amendments were enacted to discriminate against Catholics. Uh, today, of course, they're used to discriminate against all religions, but I think that is now coming to an end with the Espinoza decision last week.
0: Yeah, that's uh, it is really exciting just because they're, the Blaine Amendments are just so... Um, how many states? 39 states. And they've been such a part of our state constitutional history for such a long time. And if I recall, the gentleman, is um, it William Blaine from Maine? I'm forgetting his first name. But so, as I recall the story, um, his mother was Catholic, his father was a Protestant, and he wanted to run for higher office. And so, to essentially prove that he wasn't beholden to Rome and he didn't have these sort of strange Catholic allegiances. that were a bit um, counter the dominant Protestant ethic. Uh, He, he tried, as I recall, to to sort of put something or attempt something federally that didn't work, but from there it kind of spread out through the States. So,
1: that's right. right. It was, it was James Blaine. He was actually actually a, a congressman, also a senator, he became, he, he ran for president uh, and he uh, he lost, luckily. Um, he got very, very close though, to getting a Blaine amendment passed into the federal constitution. I think that it failed by three votes. Mm. Uh, and it people debate whether or not James Blaine personally was discriminatory against Catholics, whether he was prejudiced considering his mother and everything. But it's clear that these Blaine Amendments were seen and used to discriminate against Catholics, especially uh, when they were passed into 37 different state constitutions. Mm. And the, the history behind that is just so, it's so terrible, like the political cartoons and if you just go back and look what people were saying, just ugly, hateful things about Catholics.
0: Well, and that brings us up to today, um, South Dakota, uh, where I'm sitting right now, we do have uh, a couple of provisions in our state constitution that we could describe uh, as Blaine amendments. Um, but those are on very, very shaky ground now, in in large part, just thanks to this enormous victory that, that you had very recently at the Supreme Court. So let's maybe just dive into, into this case, Espinoza versus Montana. And do you want to maybe just start with Kind of some of the facts that gave rise to the suit.
1: Sure. So in back in 2015, Montana passed its first school choice program. And it was a, a tax credit program, which is what South Dakota has. That means that uh, in s- the scholarships for children were funded not from the state treasury, but actually by private donations given in exchange for tax credits. Uh, it was. It's a very modest program. The tax credit is only $150. So even if a person donated $10,000 to the program, they, they would just get $150 off on their, their taxes. So the program was, was great. It was going really well. It was benefiting a lot of very, very low-income families in Montana who finally had the choice to send their children to a school that was best for them and their individual needs. But then things got political and very messy. Uh, There were some people in the Montana government who did not like the program. uh, And the agency, the Department of Revenue, that was in charge of actually administrating the program decided to enact an administrative rule that said scholarships could not be used for kids going to religious schools. It could only be used for kids going to non-religious schools. Uh, so that was that was a big problem, not not just for constitutional reasons, but also because most religious schools in Montana are religious. And a lot of parents don't even live near a non-religious school. And parents choose to go to religious schools for not just religious reasons, but it just might be have the best academics or it'd be the safest, safest school in their area. So this rule had the potential to just cripple the program. So we sued. Um, we said... Uh, we made a few arguments, but one of them was the, the constitutional argument. This violated free exercise. We represented three mothers who were benefiting from the scholarships. Um, two of them were single moms. Uh, all of their, they all have daughters, and their daughters are. I love them. They're wonderful. They're it's just wonderful families who just really wanted to stand up and and fight for what was right. Uh, so we won in the trial court. Uh, then we lost at the Montana Supreme Court. Uh, the Montana Supreme Court actually struck down the entire program, saying that was the only way to prevent a single dime from going to a religious school, which was terrible. But we appealed to the U.S. Supreme Court and we won. And the Supreme Court said that uh, excluding religious schools from these scholarship programs violated the free exercise rights of both families and schools. And the... I guess the key that I'm leaving out here is that the whole justification from the state and the state agency for why they were trying to exclude religious schools was the Blaine Amendment. And they said that it was important in their constitution that they have as much separation of church and state as possible um, because, and they were led on this Blaine Amendment. And the Supreme Court said it didn't matter, that it didn't matter that this was in their state constitution. They could not discriminate.
0: Well, and it, it sounds like uh, quite the journey there too. How long from kind of start to finish, from when you first, you know, draft the lawsuit and get it filed to getting you know, a decision for the Supreme Court, the highest court in the land?
1: It, it took five years, which is actually a lot shorter than it usually takes to get a Supreme Court opinion. So, sometimes uh, it can take eight years, 15 years. So, we were pretty lucky.
0: Um. As, as the decision came out and you read the actual decision, was there anything in it like, did it was it a g- good decision? Because sometimes I understand that when decisions come out, you really have to parse it and like, well, okay, the language they're using is, is maybe favorable to this particular case, but we might have difficulty applying it to sort of a broader set of circumstances. Was it a good decision? Were you happy with it?
1: I'm pretty happy with it. I think it's a very good decision. It's very clear. Justice Roberts wrote for the majority. And after this decision, it's going to be very, very difficult, if not impossible, for any state to try to limit school choice based on either a Blaine Amendment or just a general policy of not wanting to get involved with religion. Uh, The opinion is clear that if once the government starts one of these programs, it has to include everybody.
0: Hmm. And so, five-four decision, written by Justice uh, the the Chief Justice, Justice Roberts. Was there? I mean, did they did they take your sort of prime argument, this constitutional argument? What was? Can you maybe just break down the majority opinion a little bit for us?
1: So the primary the primary reasoning from the court was actually relying on a case that they just decided um, just recently, and that was the Trinity Lutheran case, which also involved the Blaine Amendment. Uh, In that case, uh, Missouri had a state grant program for playground equipment. It was actually resurfacing for playgrounds. And a whole bunch of people applied, a whole bunch of organizations wanted to get a grant to refurbish their playgrounds, including a church and a church daycare. And the state said, no, you can't get this just because you're a church. And the Supreme Court said, also said that that violated the pre-exercise clause. So Justice Roberts found that in this case, um, Trinity Lutheran was just the natural extension to here. You know, even though that case just involved playground equipment and it wasn't really so tied up in religion because you can have a daycare and a playground that really has nothing to do with religion. Whereas if you're a religious school, a lot of things that you do are going to just inherently be religious. Uh, the chief said it, it didn't matter that the government has to be neutral toward religion; it has to have a blind eye, uh, and it can't treat religious people and schools differently.
0: As as we are looking uh, to the future, do you see this decision as being a stable decision uh, into the future? I I know that you know when we talk about school choice it's, I got, I got to confess, it can be a bit frustrating for me at times because the different parties um, involved, or they have a stake, they treat it like a zero-sum game where it's like, there's a, there's just a big pie on the table and there are only so many pieces of the pie. And it, it, it tends to kind of draw out some really combativeness in the policy world. Are you seeing some of that already out of, out of, Uh, Some of the interest groups that that would that are opposing the decision where they're already like strategizing how to how to take it down What does the future (laughs) hold for this decision? Do You know?
1: Well, they could try to take it down, but it's there It's not gonna happen. It's a pretty solid decision. It's not going anywhere It's gonna go down in the law school textbooks and the history books. It's gonna be a permanent part of our legal fabric and school choice opponents have always been around school choice has been around for since the 90s, and as long as School choice has been around, opponents have been around. And they always try to throw whatever they can against these programs to to take them down. And we still have had very steady success. Uh, I think there's almost 60 School Choice programs in, in 28 states now, or 29 states. So we, School Choice is here to stay, and I think as the years go along, we're just gonna get more programs.
0: Hmm. E- even in the wake of the decision, have you been hearing? Have you been hearing any buzz from v- various states? I know there was just big news out of Florida a couple of weeks ago, with the governor of Florida kind of signing. Uh, they're kind of pioneers in many ways. They've got a very big program, and, and the governor just signed a big extension, uh, or expansion, if you will, of that of that program. Are you hearing anything uh, elsewhere of of states kind of taking a, a fresh look? at their their programs or maybe lack of program in light of this decision
1: well i think many states are but but this one of the states i'm most excited about is actually south dakota Uh, because right now south dakota has this wonderful program but because of their Blaine amendments they had to just keep it as a tax credit program they couldn't have a voucher program they couldn't have it directly funded from the state treasury but now that Blaine amendments are out of the way they can so south dakota could provide even more students' school choice than it already is, and that's, that's very exciting.
0: Well, and if you're just joining us, this is Chris Motz. I'm the host of Faith and Politics. I'm joined by Erica Smith, a senior attorney at the Institute for Justice. Erica has just uh, litigated five-year process and won at the Supreme Court, a big case, Espinoza v. Montana, that has really opened up new horizons um, just for for people of faith, to to really seek the education that, that they know is best for their child, um, even if they might otherwise be limited financially themselves. For for Catholics too, there's there are a couple of principles at stake um, for us. There's one that just really I think overlaps with something that's that's core to what the Institute for Justice is concerned with, which is the freedom of parents to make true choices in ways that aren't constrained by their financial situation, like true freedom requires an actual choice. The other thing for Catholics too is is we do see also a principle of justice at stake in the sense of um, there's, there's really a service being provided to the state at no cost to the state. You know, the state is very interested um, in forming citizens. We need our Republican form of government depends upon and, and educated and and as our state constitution in South Dakota says, an educated and moral citizenry. And uh, the very building in which I sit right now is an old converted uh Catholic school building. It's now an office. But in in it's chiseled in stone above the doors uh through I walk through which I walk every day on my way to work, it says uh, proteo et Patria, so forgotten country. So there's also this real sense of which is why I kind of struggle sometimes with the combativeness in this sort of policy arena. It's like, no, we're all, why can't we all just desire the education of the education of children? Um, Erica, where, if, if somebody is wanting to learn a little more just about maybe the the work of the Institute for justice on, on this topic, can you point, point people to like some more resources on on where they might turn?
1: Sure. Well, they can go to our website at www.ij.org. We have um, a description of plain amendments. We have a 50-state analysis on um, where this the Supreme Court case will leave the 50 states and which states it'll open opportunities for. Um, we have a lot of literature discussing the case. So I, I love our website. <laughs> I encourage people to go.
0: Yeah, and I would too. And you know, this is this podcast kind of goes out around the world on the web, but we also broadcast on the Real Presence Radio Network, which is kind of the Upper Midwest. So I would encourage people that are in the listening area um, to just to go to ij.org, and you can find this 50-state map, and you can go click on your state. So like right now, I'm I'm there, and I'm clicking on Minnesota. And it takes me and says, "Okay, prior to Espinosa, the Minnesota courts, yada, 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 and you can do this for Minnesota, North Dakota, Montana, Wyoming, Nebraska, Iowa, South Dakota, whatever state you happen to be in to go to go check it out um, you know and even I was just in wanting to prepare a little bit for our conversation, wanted to review our state. Blaine Amendment and so I just like Googled, you know, punched in South Dakota Blaine Amendment and actually IJ was right at the top of the, the search results for a little, um, a nice little two-page PDF kind of explaining the constitutional provisions in South Dakota. It's a nice little IJ thing that is also on your website somewhere. So, I do really have to commend IJ with producing just some really nice, very user-friendly uh, sorts of, sorts of things. Um, so, we've got about five minutes remaining Eric. What's what's next? I know you, the, the work of a litigator is never finished. You've always got a number of cases in the hopper. Is there anything, do you feel like you've just sort of reached the top of the mountain and, and now you get to sit back and sort of rest for a while in the school oh, choice no. arena? Or what, <laughs> are you, what, what else are you litigating in terms of school choice?
1: Uh, well, we have, well, I am, um, I personally don't have any other school choice cases right now we also do a lot of work on economic liberty people's right to earn a living without having to deal with government red tape Uh, so i have a few of those cases going on right now but the institute for justice has several ongoing school choice cases uh, including in in maine and a couple of other places i mean this is something we every single day that ij has been open we have been litigating school choice, and we fully expect that that will continue after this victory. Um, As you were saying before, Chris, school choice opponents are, they keep going, they don't stop, and there was one quote from the president of a teachers union that said, you know, we will do whatever we can to take these programs down, even suing under Mickey Mouse provisions under state constitutions. So they will they will score state constitutions and just look for any obscure provision that they can find to try to take these programs down, and we stand up to defend them. And that and that's not going to change. Well, so we're going to stay busy.
0: Yeah, <laughs> you no doubt will. You know, there are some big cases this term that I think we're probably going to keep some constitutional litigators busy for for quite some time. You know one of the things that i 've been thinking about too, just to, to to change gears a little bit or just even thinking about our nation 's experience with the coronavirus the last number of months, is there 's been an, a, a tremendous amount of just sort of creativity and it 's been like forced creativity upon mm-hmm. upon educators and and really got a, a to hand it to both public school educators, private school educators, just the whole, I don't want to call it an industry, but everybody within that profession, if you will, they've just been um, exploding with creativity. And I think that's, a, that's some common ground that we can really honor. And one of the things that I can't help but wonder if it, if it brings to a place like South Dakota is just some, so maybe um, thinking outside of the box, because as you maybe recall from your work with with uh, former Senator Heineman and some of the others on the South Dakota partners in education, is there's there's the reality too of a public school in a small town in a rural area. Like that public school is in many ways the heart of the community, and so you know it can be it can be hard to maybe think outside the box in terms of school choice, whether it's you know vouch- vouchers or education savings accounts, or honestly even even our very modest tax credit scholarship program. But I do see this, just the creativity that we've seen occurring as just sort of a positive step to help people escape um, from, or to, to take a step out of, of some of their, just sort of the status quo kind of thinking. Um, you know, two, I don't really know, Erica, what the, what the, the future holds um, for South Dakota. I know there's just a lot of thought going on right now um, uh, amongst people who are interested in this, in this topic. And we'll, we'll see, does IJ ever get involved? I know you've provided really expert legal advice, but in any, do you have any thoughts on some of the political, there may be more political rather than legal questions of, you know, what is the, what's the best path forward? Do we, do we need like a statewide referendum to, to remove the blame from, from our, from our constitution? Did you strike the text? Are you a bit more comfortable kind of just leaving it in the realm of the courts and seeking to expand the statutory programs? Any any thoughts in that regard?
1: It, it's a very good question. I think that South Dakota's Plain Amendments are really dead letters right now, and I think mm. it's fine to to leave them in there, but if people want to try to get them out, that, that's fine too. And what I would really like to see happen is the legislature to take the initiative to pass another program in South Dakota, and they don't have to wait for the courts to do that. They can do that on their own. Um, and in the unlikely event that the program would later get challenged under the plain amendment, we would be there to defend it. But I would love to see South Dakota pass a new voucher program because the, the tax credit is the tax credit program is limited because. Of course, South Dakota doesn't have a um, state income tax, so it relies on actually insurance taxes. And uh, so that's just an inherent cap on the program. And so many more kids could be getting scholarships in South Dakota if it was a voucher
0: program. Well,
1: so, I, legislature will do the right thing.
0: You know, and I love just hearing you say that that our Blaine Amendment in South Dakota is a dead letter. And I think we'll just end there. Erica Smith, thank you so much for joining me on the program. And thank you, dear listeners, for tuning in this time. If you have ideas, uh, issues, concerns, as always, reach out. Stcatholicconference.org. Until next time, live well.